Hey, everybody, here we go. Another episode of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. Scott Burnside here. And as always, Pierre Lebrun sitting very still in Toronto. And a huge treat today, former GM of the year, Doug Armstrong of the Red Hot St. Louis Blues. Doug, welcome. And, and just before you even get in, do you actually get a trophy for being GM of the year? Is there an actual trophy that you get to take home with you? Yeah, they give us a replica, a small replica of the uh, official trophy, and it's uh, perched uh, majestically in my office here, and uh, excited to have it. <laughs> well, congratulations, and thanks for, for joining us. It's, uh, it's a treat to have you. It must be, things must feel a little bit different uh, in St. Louis than they did, say, two or three months ago. It must be, it must be a nice feeling for you. As we speak here, team on a seven-game winning streak, the tied for the longest in the NHL right now. Yeah, we're excited the way we're playing. We actually started to play better probably mid-December. We had a Western Canada road trip just before Christmas, and uh, we we played very well. We lost to Vancouver, but played well in that game. And, uh, you know, it took us a little, way, a little time to find our sea legs this year, but uh, we've been playing pretty good hockey now for the better part of a couple of months, and we certainly hope it uh, stays on for a few more months. Now, Doug, my, my read on your team from the outside looking in, and you can uh, set me straight, but I feel like, you know, you made some really important changes last year, and it just feels like to me, looking from a time zone away, that it just took a long, long time for all the pieces to come together. Is it as simple as that, or is there a little more to it? No, I, I would say it, it, it did take a, certainly did take a long time to come together, and uh, one of the things that I, I wasn't prepared for was the adjustment and in, in ice time that, that, you know, players that have been here for a while, when you bring in O'Reilly, when you bring in Perron, when you bring in different players, you know, everybody has to sacrifice and, and it starts with ice time. And it's, uh, and it was certainly no, not anything malicious on any player, but it was difficult to, to find their groove, whether you're on the first power player, first penalty kill to, to be slotted differently. And, uh, uh, for whatever reason, it took us a little while and we obviously had to make a coaching change, which was difficult to, uh, to try and jolt things back into play, and uh, it's been a roller coaster season. And uh, I've been fortunate uh, through my time in, in management not to not to have a lot of roller coaster years. And uh, I didn't realize how lucky I was to actually went through one. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, Doug, I, I I think that's an interesting part of this because I wonder what it's like for you. You know, you go through an off season and you feel you've addressed uh, issues that you want to address, and you bring in quality players. And it doesn't work for a period of time. And, and we can say this now, your crack PR staff has sent me some interesting stats about your current streak. And you have, uh, I believe, a plus 17 goal differential at even strength. So it's clear that your team is now hitting on all cylinders in terms of, uh, of even strength play, which is so important. And I wonder if there was a time when you maybe second-guessed yourself this season about whether you had made the right moves, whether you had the right people, or what it was like for you as as a manager who had assembled this team? Well, I think the players that we brought in all played well. That was the, that was the part that was, uh, you know, strange when you look at Ryan O'Reilly's year and David Perron's year, two of our top offensive players, have, have been our best offensive players all year long. And uh, so we just thought that was going to, you add that into Tarasenko, Shen, uh, Schwartz, and uh, and then our defense, uh, we, we really liked, to, obviously, what Edmondson and Dunn and Petrangelo and Pranko. And <clears throat> quite honestly, it was returning players that uh, <clears throat> were having difficulties getting their, their, their games in order. 
not until, as I said, the last couple of months. And now they, the, the player, the core players that have been here for a number of years are now playing well and the new players are continuing to play well. So it's, uh, we're hitting on all cylinders right now, but it was, uh, it, it was funny because we made a lot of changes and the players that we brought in were, were doing what we thought, but we were, we were, we were regressing and that, that was concerning. Now, Doug, one uh, one real great story too in all this is Bennington, your young nutminder, and uh, you know that's been part and parcel part of all this as well. What what can you tell us about him? And again, probably not part of the original puzzle when you're sitting back at a training camp in September thinking how the year is going to play out, right? No, and that's you know the old best laid uh, plans of mice and men. Uh, <laughs> quite honestly, we, we we were starting into the season, and Billy Huso was a goalie that. Uh, uh, we thought was going to really push for our, our roster, had a very good training camp. Uh, and Bennington was, came in as our fourth, quite honestly. And, um, but he went down to the American Hockey League. Huso got injured. Uh, Bennington took the ball, uh, started to play very well, and uh, uh, really just was given that opportunity, and, and he hasn't looked back. And uh, it's been a great story. And, and in the NHL, you see those stories. Uh, every year someone comes up out of, out of nowhere, uh, you know, like Carlson last year in, uh, in Vegas was a fabulous story. You know, Bennington's a great story now. And, I, you know, you want to let it last and hope it lasts for a number of years for these guys. But it's nice to be part of that. But, yeah, I, I, I would be uh, misleading and uh, flat out lying if I said that we thought Bennington was going to be the guy uh, that was going to carry our franchise. Doug, it's interesting because we're a couple of uh, weeks out from the trade deadline and you're a guy who has been involved on, on really on both sides in the last four or five years in terms of um, high profile players, both coming and going from St. Louis. I, I think of a couple of years ago, Kevin Shattenkirk going to Washington, after which your team not only made the playoffs, but won around, um, you know, a few years before that, Ryan Miller comes over from Buffalo. And um, I wonder if there are lessons you think you've learned as a GM over the years, as you approach the trade deadline, and maybe whether the, the deadline approach has changed for you personally, or maybe even broader than that across the league, uh, in terms of, of, of the best strategy when, when you're faced this uh, particular time of the year. Yeah, I think I can answer that in, in two problems. Like internally, uh, you, you have to take each deadline as it comes and, and you reflect on what you've done in the past. And um, three years ago, I think it was, uh, we went, we kept back as we kept Brower. <clears throat> we went for a run, made it to the uh, semifinals. Uh, and I really thought that was the end of a, end of a core group and we were ready to transfer into a new group. And so we got there and I did, I just didn't feel that the team uh, could allow Shattenkirk to walk and get nothing in return. Uh, Kevin was a great player for us for a number of years, and we tried to re-sign him. He wanted to hit the market, so it, was, it wasn't a reflection of learning anything. It was just where you are at the time. Uh, then we fast-forward one year later. It was to uh, last year with, with uh, Stastny, and we had a great uh, October, November last year. And then we really, uh, for December, January, and February, up to the trade deadline, I think we were our, our winning percentage was in the bottom five or six in the league. So our, our point total was within one or two points of the playoffs, but we weren't playing like a team that was going to push and, and, and have success in the playoffs. And you try and build a team, and, and we try and build an organization that can win win the whole thing. And, and it just felt that you know where how we were playing and what we were what we were doing. It was time to 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 move Paul along, grab another asset, and. Uh, uh, we were able to use those in the summer, so every year is a little bit different. And I was talking to uh, 
one of our local media here, and they said, well, this year like last year, and I said, well, the, this year is almost the polar opposite where we started right. out so poorly this year, and then mid-December we started to play better. So we got to the, the all-star break, and I felt really good about the way we were playing. I didn't know we were going to win the next six coming out of it, but it didn't feel it didn't have that same feel going into the all-star break a year ago where there, there was a uh, an empty feeling in your stomach that we – we needed to get better. We needed to do things differently or else we were going to end up where we did. And, and we, we talked about that going into the deadline. We played Winnipeg and Nashville, I think, the two games before and just got hammered. Uh, and, and that crystallized thing, that, that we didn't feel that group was going to be a serious contender to push, so we made that decision. Where this year, you know, we're playing well and, and uh, uh, I, I don't see us uh, being in that same situation where we're looking just to gain an asset for the sake of gaining an asset and hurting this team. Right. Well, I certainly, I think you made a great point there in explaining why you, you wouldn't see yourself selling a, a pending UFA. And really, you, you know, you, you don't have a roster that's filled with them anyway. And Doug, I would say, you know, obviously Jay Boomister is an expiring deal and Carl Gunnison, but you really have a pretty intact roster. I guess the real question is, and and I know there's only so far you're going to go with this answer, but the question is, do you see yourself potentially adding or, or is it more of a situation of, Hey, if there's a hockey deal, there's a hockey deal. But but in terms of the the rental prices that are out there to add, that maybe you don't feel like that's that's quite your game plan right now. Yeah, I would I would say that we're we're I don't want to say vocal about it, but we're not we're not hesitant to say that I we're not in the rental market. Uh, we really like we have some young players, uh, Jordan Cairo, Samuel Blay, uh, that are playing very good. We have Nolan and Butler that have showed experienced players. Uh, so. Mm-hmm. You know, we we had a, t- a good conversation today with our pro scouts, and it's it's not the year where we need to spend a third, fourth, or fifth round pick to get someone that's going to sit beside us in the press box till somebody gets hurt. If someone, if we get an injury, we'd like to go to our own depth to to do that. And then, you know, because we have younger players, we're trying to get uh, Robert Thomas uh, up in our lineup. We have other guys that I don't. We don't see ourselves spending a first round pick for a player for two or three months. So. Uh, we're in a we're in the hockey trade mode, and those are usually the most difficult to make this time of year. But mm-hmm. if there's something there that that we can see value for the rest of this year and a minimum of next year, we can look at doing something like that. And and that that could include a a, a prospect or a pick, but a prospect for a pick for something that's going to uh, have to make us make a hard decision on July 1st whether we keep or or let the player go. I don't see us getting into that market. Yeah, when you're in a situation like that where maybe you're not going to be you know you're not looking at a high profile player or first round pick or, or or any of the things you've been involved in uh, the last three or four years or over the the recent past do you do you sit back and look and see what's going on i mean pierre and i talk about this every week but it's such a fascinating time and there are so many uh, important potentially impactful players who could be on the move uh, you're a hockey fan too. Do you do you sit back and go, geez, I wonder, I wonder what will happen. What's Ottawa going to do? What's Yarmo uh, Kekalainen going to do in Columbus? Do you sit back and wonder those kinds of things, or are you just hunkered down and saying, okay, what what's my roster look like? What's my next game look like? Or can you take a wide view of it, uh, given that you're probably not going to be involved in those kinds of deals this year? Yeah, I, I would say I look at that in, in, in two different fashions. First and foremost, I'm a hockey fan. Uh, so I, I love I love watching the game. I love <clears throat> talking the game and and finding out what what other teams are going to do. What would I do if I was managing that team? Uh, but the other thing that I think is more important for my actual job is there's so many 
younger new managers in the game now, and you try and get an understanding of how, so when I'm going to deal with them in the future, how do they deal in the past? And a lot of a lot of the managers now are starting to find their their characteristics, what they're going to do. For a number of years, it was a group of guys that had sort of been in in the business for a long time, and uh, you sort of had a really good feeling on how one was going to act. <clears throat> with the new group coming in now, uh, a bunch of really uh, astute young hockey minds and, and, and good young people coming in. You're trying to get a feel for how they're going to act and whether you're involved in it in the next two weeks or not, you, you'll be talking to these people again at the draft and, and over the next few years. So you're trying to gain a little bit of an understanding of, of how they think about things. But for sure on trade deadline day, whether we're involved or not involved, uh, we're going to be watching and, and being very excited to see see how the, how the landscape changes. Yeah, and Doug, it's interesting. I think we've had less than spectacular trade deadlines the last five six years and it's i think it's a it's because of the cap system and the way the system works now i've been saying for a while now and you know you can agree or disagree but your ryan o'reilly deal kind of proves it on july 1st i feel like the month of june leading into july 1st has become a bigger blockbuster month for change than the actual in-season trade deadline over the last five six years and uh, a, I wonder if you agree, and B, uh, you know, wh- why exactly do you, do you feel that is the case? Yeah, well, I certainly do agree with it, and, and uh, uh, Kenny and I, Kenny Holland and I, have talked about this in the past too. Where, you know, and and that's what I think uh, why the NHL is in such a great spot now because you can make the playoffs in the seventh or eighth seed, like we've seen the Kings do, and walk away with the championship. You can make it at the seventh or eighth seed, like Nashville did, and go into the uh, go into the finals. Where in, in the past, the reality was you had four teams in the West, four teams in the East uh, that had $80 million budgets back in the late 90s that were going to play each other at some point. <laughs> you know, and right. so you, you, we would, I was fortunate to be part of one of those uh, franchises in Dallas where you were really competing against, at that time, we were competing against Detroit, Colorado, St. Louis, and Dallas. And other teams would, would pop into there, but they weren't consistently spending that type of money. And on, on, the, on the East, you had the Rangers that were always there and Philly that was always there spending the money trying to compete to win the championship. Now, um, so you, you knew that if you were going to spend a first-round pick, Pierre, I always believed that you, you felt you were going to get into the, the round of eight, likely the round of four, and then, and then let the chips fall where they may, where now you can spend, uh, like we did here in, in St. Louis, uh, we, you know, we spent uh, quite a few assets to get Ryan Miller. We felt he was the missing piece, and... Uh, uh, unfortunately for, for our franchise, it didn't work out. And then Ryan moves on and, and we're, you know, we're, we're no closer to where we were. And that was one of the years that the seventh or eighth seed went in and won the championship. So, uh, I, I think that you, a player coming in, isn't going to really make the difference that it used to make, uh, cause you're competing against more teams. And, uh, mm-hmm. so I really think, and, and then also with the salary cap, you have to have young players coming. We've seen we've seen the evolution of the younger players, not only the, the impact they're having on the ice, but how they're redefining the economic impact of the world. Uh, you have players coming out of the bridge contract for a lot of players seems to be uh, a thing of the past. Uh, and that's only going to probably increase uh, over the summer. I'm, I'm fortunate that we don't have a player in that caliber we have to deal with this summer, uh, but it's going to be a difficult summer for a lot of franchises because the, uh, as we've seen, the, the, the landscape of, of how you pay a, a player under 25 is drastically different than it's ever been in the past. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, I, I wonder you you mentioned the you know sort of that changing landscape with the contracts, and of course we spent a lot of time talking this year about Austin Matthews and what would happen there, and and whether there was a ripple effect. Do you see? Do you see a pendulum sort of swinging then with the with what we've seen the Leafs do with Austin Matthews in terms of how teams have to approach those young players and and how to to, to lock them up and and in what fashion to lock them up or is it maybe more a blip on the radar? Do you think, Doug, or how do you do you see this as kind of maybe this is part of what life is going to be like moving forward? Well, I think it's going to be this is what life is going to be like. Uh, you know, we we saw the players jump. There used to be a comp of players making six million dollars, which was a coming out of the entry level. Those were the top players making six. Uh, a lot of guys would sign six times six, six times seven, uh, and they were the they were the first and second overall picks in the new deals. Really, really top players. Well, that we've seen that over over the last uh, two years with with uh, four or five contracts that have gone into the tens. Now, you know, may, maybe if it's a um, dimensional once in a lifetime or once in a generation player but now you when you have four or five there's not four or five once in a generation players <laughs> uh, so the, the landscape has just changed and uh, I, I think as management you'd always like to be able to you know I speak for St. Louis we're, we're willing to spend at the cap we do spend at the cap uh, I'd rather spend you know less money on on more players to have a stronger team than loading up on two or three players and hoping you they can carry everything and they stay healthy and all that, but the reality is that the players are going to get what they uh, what they command and and we've seen the the, the willingness to hold out uh, to, to to do that or I as I said it's really not a holdout because there's no contract but to negotiate into the season if they if necessary and uh, I would say that might become a tactic that becomes more of the norm and and I hope it's not because it's not I don't. Now, now we go back to what we talked about earlier being a fan. I don't think it's good for for the fans. As a, you you want to see these guys on, on on opening day, and you really don't want to turn the TV on and and you know see the se- seven or eight minutes before a game talking about the business of hockey and not not the the sport of hockey. So I, I'm hoping it doesn't get to that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see uh, um, not a withholding of service, but uh, working into the season before you get your contracts done. Uh, hopefully that's not part of uh, the new landscape, but uh, it, it, we certainly have to think it might be. Yes, I certainly wrote my share of William Nylander updates, uh, Doug, during the first <laughs> half of the year. But uh, uh, one thing I wanted to touch on, because I, unless I missed it from, uh, from our good athletic uh, comrade, Jeremy Rutherford, lately, when you made the coaching change, uh, Craig Barube replacing Mike Yo, you framed it at the time as, as you know, uh, interim and, and that you would, uh, you know, come up with a list and, and at the same time analyze the work that Craig was doing. And you, so you, you certainly left it open-ended as far as giving yourself all the options you needed. That's my interpretation anyway. A, I'm just wondering where, where that is now and, and how you see that playing out. Well, uh, that is what, that's what we talked about and that's really how we're moving forward. But I, I, in all honesty, that list is getting smaller and smaller the more success Craig and Craig I'm sorry, Craig keeps having. Uh, mm-hmm. He's doing a he's doing a fabulous job for us, and uh, uh, you know our, our what what we said uh, at first of January is that we're putting all of our uh, efforts into supporting Craig now, uh, working with Craig and getting through this season and see how it finishes off. Uh, he's done a great job now, and if we can continue to to work together and 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 
this becomes the norm of how we play, it's only going to benefit Craig Ruby, trust me. Yeah. What Just before we let you go, Doug, what is it, do you think, about Craig's evolution since he took over for Mike Yo? Where do you see the areas that he has had the most impact in, in getting this team to where it is right now, which is in a playoff spot and challenging for third place in the Central? Well, Craig's an interesting uh, individual in the sense that uh, you don't like to describe people as new school, old school, but uh, he's a, he's a he's a man's man for whatever that is, and uh, like he he just tells it the way it is. He doesn't he's not trying to read any of these books on being a psychologist on how to poke and prod. He just says this is what you need to do to have success. Uh, if you don't do this, I won't play you. And it and it's pretty simple, <laughs> and it's a, it's an old school approach. But he does it in a manner that's not it's not condescending it's not threatening it's just a matter of fact on on this is how i this is how i run my team this is what i expect and then he holds them accountable to to those standards that he sets and uh, uh i always wonder in the in the youtube generation if they ever click on and watch how he played his career if they're if they're a little more intent to listen to him because uh, if they <laughs> want play, that, might, that, that might spill over into the room <laughs> yeah that's for tough. sure all right. Well, Doug Armstrong, thanks for hanging out with us today and uh, and, and uh, chatting about what has turned out to be a uh, pretty impressive season in St. Louis thus far as we head into the trade deadline. So thanks for hanging out with us. Let's uh, let's do it again. Well, guys, I always enjoy talking to you both, and thank you very much for having me on. And we'll uh, probably see you in the sunny south uh, Florida here in early March. Yes, <laughs> I, will, I, I will be there, Doug. Sounds good, man. <laughs> All right. Okay, thanks guys, again, Doug. Take care. Yeah, take care. All right, Pierre, so if you and I went back to the beginning of the season, I think both you and I liked what the Blues had done in the offseason, the moves that Doug Armstrong had made, and then we spent a fair amount of time uh, in the first uh, six or seven or eight weeks going, geez, why, why, is it, why are they so terrible? What do you make of this Blues team now? And are they a team that, you know, do they push Dallas out of uh, that third spot in the Central? Are they a team that is going to be a handful for, let's assume they're going to play either Nashville or Winnipeg in the first round, are they the team that, that maybe can make some noise um, and challenge the teams that I think we, a lot of us have imagined would uh, would be the, the front runners in the Central and in the Western Conference as a whole? Well, I'm always on the lookout for teams that have huge second halves entering the playoffs, right? I mean, you and I have talked about this over the years. I will often only look at second half records as I try to figure out what's going to happen, although it's harder than ever in the parity in this league. But I love teams going in hot, and, uh, uh, you know, they will be a handful. I guess what I would say is we'll probably need to see a bitter, uh, a bigger body of work from Bennington to truly feel comfortable that, that he's up to it, right? I mean, he's, he's had an amazing run, but, you know, the NHL playoffs are a whole other beast, so I'm just being honest on that end. But their five-on-five play, uh, you know, Ryan O'Reilly's been unbelievable. Alex Petrangelo, I mean, the team that we thought we would see, and I really, I had them pegged as third in the Central back in September behind Winnipeg and Nashville, and I think they're going to end up there. I, you know, the Stars have responded well as well in the second half, Scotty, your old team, but I think St. Louis is, is a tad better, and I think the Blues are going to end up third. Yeah. I, 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 I don't disagree with you, my friend, and I, you know, I, I sometimes like to uh, to be on the opposite side of the fence from you, but in this one, I think I agree with you, although it's going to be interesting to see 
just how that central shakes down. I, I think both Dallas and, and St. Louis are, are teams that will be in the postseason. Um, just not sure exactly what order. So yeah, uh, and but one, on. one, uh, one takeaway before we turn the page on Doug Armstrong in St. Louis, he, he kind of hinted at some news there. I think basically, sure sounds like Craig Berube, Craig Berube is going to be the full time head coach. I think judging from what the GM shared with us there. I would think so, and I, I'm assuming that they don't fall out of the playoff picture, which is, you know, there's still, you know, whatever it is, 25 games or whatever the number is left. It, it, lots of can happen, but I assume if they are a, a playoff team, uh, it's it's hard to imagine that Craig wouldn't get a chance to, to continue the work there next season. So, um, all right, I want to actually, it'll be good because I, I want to come back to this in the when we start the second segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. I know you won't go anywhere, but I hope no one else will because we'll be right back. All right, Pierre, that was great. And again, it's always nice to work with a pro, right? You give me the segue. We're launching into the second <laughs> segment of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And, and you mentioned Craig Brube coming back as uh, potentially as the, the head coach of the St. Louis Blues. The Blues make the playoffs, and I think they are a playoff team. Where does that put Craig Brube when it comes to the Jack Adams? And we've talked a lot <laughs> about Barry Trotz and the, the, the work that – that he's done uh, with the first place New York Islanders, of course, but um, uh, Bill Peters in Calgary, a team that is uh, neck and neck with San Jose atop the Pacific Division. Lots of ch- lots of choices. With with a partial season under his belt, does Craig Berube get some love? And I think back to the year that Mike Sullivan took over in Pittsburgh. You know, a guy won back to back Stanley Cups and never got a sniff of a Coach of the Year award, which was a bit, which was a bit unfortunate, I thought. But sometimes it's hard for the voters, um, and and it's voted on by the broadcasters um, to, to to factor in a partial season for a coach, even if the turnaround is dramatic, and and that's what's happened in St. Louis. Yeah, that's probably what's going to hurt him. Uh, you know, you and I don't vote on this award, so it's always interesting to look at it from the outside. And the writers vote for almost all the other ones, but this one's the uh, team broadcasters. I think the the partial year would hurt him, especially because there's so many compelling, uh, you know, candidates. I think it's Barry Trotz to lose at this point. One name that you didn't mention is Claude Julian. And, I mean, yes. <laughs> I don't know that a lot of people have the Habs challenging Boston and Toronto in the standings this year. So he's going to be... Uh, uh, a, a pretty heavy favorite to Bill Peters and Calgary, you mentioned. And, you know, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago, but if somehow the Coyotes actually squeak in as a last wild card and they had a big win last night in Vegas, uh, Rick Tockett absolutely deserves consideration, I think. I mean, league leading, man games lost to injury. Uh, it's just ridiculous, really, how they've survived. And uh, Rick Tockett's done an unbelievable job there. But, you know, I, I think. Craig Berube is a great story. I mean, heck, there's kind of a twin parallel story going on with Chicago and St. Louis, you know, the two sort of dominant Central Division teams of the last decade. Coaching changes around the same time this year. And look at Jeremy Colton's work in Chicago after replacing a legendary Joel Quenville. I mean, uh, you kind of wonder, you know, have they have they made the coaching change in the offseason? And remember, that was sort of a a subject in Chicago at the end of last year, Scott, whether or not there would be changes. And they stuck with, with Joel, and why not? I mean, the guy's going straight to the Hall of Fame one day. But you, you look now, after the adjustment period, the Hawks have really responded to young Jeremy Colton. So that's another great story. 
Well, let's see, I, okay, I, I want to talk. Uh, we're going to get to some trade talk here as as we move along in the second segment, and I do want to ask you your thoughts on Bob Murray uh, in Anaheim. But I, I think it's I think it is fascinating to look at the teams that have. Know, not just made coaching changes, but I think for a lot of us, it was easy to write off the Blackhawks. I believe, I would have to go back and look, we're dead last in the Western Conference at one point this season. And uh, the Blues were not far ahead of them at one point as well. And to see both these teams you know, sort of jump back into it, uh, I know it's the Western Conference and, and, and that's a function of the mediocrity there. Uh, outside of those top elite teams that we've talked about, what do you think of the Blackhawks? Do they uh, do they have a shot? I mean, Colorado is still a mess. Cannot string. They can't find a victory anywhere. Um, you mentioned Arizona staying in the hunt. Anaheim has dropped out. Um, Minnesota, Miko Koivu's out for the rest of the season. Um, Paul Fenton has some issues to deal with the vis-a-vis Eric Stahl. I know you mentioned that in your notes package this week. There's a lot going on, and here come the Blackhawks. Now, they, they had a pretty big setback, got beat pretty badly by Boston at the beginning of this week, uh, as you and I are chatting. Do you like the – can the Blackhawks do it? There's there's some teams to jump, but their runway isn't as long as, say, a team mm-hmm. like Philadelphia that's playing well in the East. What do you think? I think St. Louis gets in, as we talked about, so then it leaves one spot. I mean, and I think Dallas will make it as well. So whether or not Dallas or St. Louis is third in the Central and then the other team takes the wild card. And then it's, man, oh, man, you want to talk about the Turtle Derby. Um, You know, a team that mystifies me, not because I don't understand why they're struggling, but Colorado, I thought, was a lock to make the playoffs this year. Not, uh, Not to be a cup contender, but to be at least a wild card, I thought. And... Boy, they have not gotten goaltending of late. I mean, that's really hurt them throughout this. And, of course, no secondary scoring. So, I mean, I want to pick the Avs as the team that beats out the rest of the fray, but I, I'm I'm picking them with very little confidence. Let's put it that way. It's interesting. You know, and for me, the interesting part about Chicago and whether they can close the gap and maybe sneak in is that second wildcard team. And I, I agree with you. I think that's that's the one spot that that uh, is possibly open um, is that uh, there's Cam Ward, a, a guy who sort of, you know, the victim of the changing tides in Carolina and um, wondered where he was going to end up or what kind of role he was going to have. And Cam Ward's been absolutely terrific for Chicago. And uh, to see that team, you know, sort of claw back into it, Patrick Kane's having a terrific year. Um, it, it, it it may be, maybe it's too much for them to do, but I think that's one of those great stories if they do somehow make their way into the playoffs. And boy, that core has been through some playoff battles. I, I'm not sure you could sleep on them if they do make it. Yeah, and I, judging from some of the commentary from uh, Chicago media guys, uh, media people responding to Hawks fans, that the Hawks fan base seems to be torn on what is going on right now because I think... <laughs> I think there's a I think there's a lose for you's camp, and uh, and I think there's another camp that's getting nostalgic and is enjoying this. But I I, I guess I, I get it. I guess there are some Hawks fans that are saying there's zero chance this team wins a playoff round or or at the very least goes far in the playoffs. What's the point? You know, let's get the high pick. So I get it. It's a it's kind of a <laughs> it's a it's an interesting thing and. You know, just to finish off also in Colorado, wouldn't it be interesting if, uh, you know, Colorado is getting Ottawa's pick, of course, and if they keep sliding, I mean, what if they end up with two of the top five picks in June? My goodness. Yeah, well, I think I think that has to factor into a lot of 
a lot of GMs are going to be in this boat. But if you're Joe Sackick, and, and there are some obvious holes in that lineup, and you obviously need to address your goaltending, and it, uh, so there's lots of things going on there. I mean, maybe you just let nature take its course, right? Like you aren't going out there, you know, sending off draft picks and, and prospects, trying to shore yourself up for, you know, perhaps a second straight game 82 win so you can get in the first round. I, I think there's a lot of people who look like that. And that's another good segue because, you know, my sense of what's happened in Anaheim. Uh, and I don't, I don't think Bob Murray really wanted to fire Randy Carlisle at all. I think my sense is he would have preferred to have let the season play out, see what happens in the offseason, see what happens, um, you know, maybe make the playoffs, maybe they wherever they fall in the draft lottery. But the team was so bad and looked so disheartened that, that they did make the coaching change. But they didn't really change the coach. They just, they just, the GM is now the head coach. And I wonder what went through your mind when Bob Murray made the announcement that um, instead of you know, bringing in an interim coach or bringing up Dallas Eakin from San Diego or whatever the options were, that he was going to take the coaching job uh, for the rest of the season so he would get a, a different view of, of his team in Anaheim. And I wonder what you think of that, because I think it's something that I've talked to a couple of GMs since, and they're like, I, like that's, that's pretty, that's out there a little bit. And I think a lot of people are, I think a lot of people are just wondering how it's going to go. I got a half dozen text messages from other front office guys around the league, <laughs> from other front office guys around the league asking me if I if I if I knew if Bob Murray had ever coached at any level, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I endeavored to find out, and I and it turns out midget midget hockey is where Bob Murray had coached before, but we're talking about a guy who was a pretty awesome defenseman and in his day as a Blackhawk and, and of course has been a long time scout slash executive through the years. And the guy knows hockey inside out. It's just that this is the one area of the game that he has no experience. But I think literally the fact that he's doing this speaks to how little the organization, you know, is putting emphasis on wins and losses the rest of the season. Let's be honest. I mean, I think this is about, you know, if, you know, if the Ducks can get a lottery pick out of this, that's that would be good. Um, and I think him being behind the bench, as he talked about with the media, is about finding out day to day what the hell, what the heck's going on with his group. Um, not just on the ice during games, although that in itself will be a, 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 an important vantage point for him. But I think, you know, on the team charter, you know, during practices, you just as a coach, you spend so much more time fraternizing with players as you ever would as a GM. And I think this will give him a better education of what's going on with this group. Believe me, I think Bob Murray knew going into this year that there'd be regression and that his team was probably going to be on the outs. I truly believe that. But I don't think in his heart of hearts he ever thought they would look this brutal. And so that's probably what's troubling. And it's not just everyone keeps focusing on, on Kessler and Perry especially and how bad those contracts look and you know Kessler's playing on an arthritic hip. Yeah, uh, listen, those are their obvious problems. I think what's probably a bigger concern to Bob Murray is that some of his 20-something players, really the next wave, have, have regressed this year. I, I mean, Happis Lindholm hasn't looked as great as he normally would. Brandon Montour, uh, you know, Ricard Raquel. I mean, the, these are, this is, this, is the next, this is the next leadership group, and some of these guys have not played as well. So why is that? And and I think that's what he wants to find out from here the rest of the year. 
Yeah, I, th- I think I'm, I'm with you because it's and it's interesting. I, w- I watched their game against the Leafs must be a week ago. And I again, there was a graphic that came up and you look at that blue line contingent. I mean, it's uh, yes, the, there are some there are some veterans up front who are sort of aging their way, you know, sort of out of the way the game is played now. But that back end should be way better than it is. And you're right. And I'm sure that this will be, you know, this can be fascinating for, for those players to be under that kind of scrutiny by the GM. And, and it'll be good for Bob Murray to see up front because you're right. There are certainly elements of that Ducks team that should have been much better uh, this season uh, than they have been. And you know, really thank goodness for John Gibson or to be even worse. And that's saying something. So um, mm-hmm. I want to say just before we, you know, as we slide into the end of uh, this edition of two man advantage, the podcast, of course, trade deadline looming. Um, I, I uh, curious whether you think you know, a couple of injuries that have popped up. Uh, I know you and your uh, colleagues at TSN sort of address this David Pasternak, a very curious team event thumb injury that is going to keep him out of action for at least two weeks. And, and I, you know, the sense is who knows really how long he's going to be out. Um, and that was a team that was already looking for um, some, some scoring punch up front. Do you think it changes what the Bruins are doing? And then I'll ask you again, Oli Mata uh, went into the boards awkwardly for the Penguins, a Penguins team that's really on the bubble of making the playoffs, which is a bit of, um, unusual to think of at this time of the season. And so I wonder if you think that that maybe alters Jim Rutherford's plans as we head into the last couple of weeks for the deadline or mm-hmm. what you, what you make of it? You know, I think Jim Rutherford's telling people that he's already made a lot of changes and that Justin Schultz coming back here at some point, And that's like a trade deadline addition. I agree with all that, but because it's Jim Rutherford, I feel like he's always deep down has, has that urge to add. I feel like if there was no trade deadline, Jim Rutherford would, would make a trade every month, 12 months a year. Like I, just, I just think I just I'd think be up for that. <laughs> uh, God bless Jim Rutherford. He, he keeps us employed. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't know that the caliber of defenseman is really available out there that would make sense, at least in terms of the assets that it would take for Pittsburgh. I think for Boston, you know, I, I, I joked in RDS during my friendship yesterday that Don Sweeney's no, nose grew like Pinocchio when he said that it wasn't going to affect this trade deadline strategy that Pasternak got hurt. Although I guess you could argue what he's saying is they were already intent on adding a top six board. So I guess what he's saying is, what does it change? We're already going to do that. So I suppose that's true. And uh, I, I guess what I would say is if they were blinking at the prices that they have been encountering so far for some of these bigger name rental players, I think the Pasternak injury, even though he's coming back, you know, he's going to be back before the playoffs, obviously, way before then. Nevertheless, I think it's a reminder that they can't screw around. Uh, I mean, this is a very good Boston team that is going to have to beat some high-quality competition all the way through. There's no easy path for the Bruins. You know, they probably play Toronto, and then it's probably Tampa. Uh, And if it's not Toronto, it's Montreal. Uh, I mean, there's just... They, they need to add, and they need to add because, you know, Patrick Spurs, Ron, and Zidane Chera are not going to be there forever. And, yeah. you know, they've done an amazing job of retooling really on the fly and, and bringing this whole next wave of players in around those two great legendary veterans. But they have a chance to win, and, and they need to be all in. And so I think zero question in my mind that uh, they add uh, a player of impact up front you know, whether that's a, a Panarin or a Wayne Simmons or go down the list of the guys that we've all been talking about for weeks, I think the Bruins get one of them for sure. 
I'm I'm curious what you make of the the Penguins because it's I talked to an NHL executive this week and he said you know it's almost dismissed the fact that the Bruins were sitting in the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference and I think as we speak now Carolina is one point behind them basically it was like don't worry Sidney Crosby is going to take care of business that team is too good they've done too much winning um basically and i don't disagree with that philosophy but i wonder if you look at this penguins team you know if uh, malkin uh, will miss the next game after a, a pretty nasty two-handed swing at uh, raffle during a, an, an emotional game against uh, philadelphia a game the penguins frankly were lucky to win uh given how badly they were outplayed and outshot um, malkin's had an off year you've got the mata injury you've had matt murray who was excellent against philadelphia but has had some ups and downs in goal I mean, it's at some point, and we saw it with LA and Chicago. At some point, you run out of runway, <laughs> even if you're the right. great, one of the great teams of of your generation. Do you think the Penguins are are flirting with that, or do you are you of the mind that it won't matter really right now? That at some point over the last twenty games of the season, Penguins are going to find their way. They're going to be a playoff team. And they're going to be a handful because they have the greatest player of his generation in Sidney Crosby. And they have a Hall of Famer like Malkin and a, a all blue chip defender like Chris Letang, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you make of this? I'm making them that I think they're at the point, uh, and I truly believe Jim Rutherford believes this all the way down, that they just got to get in. They're not worried about where, where they are if they get in. You know what I mean? Like they're, they one, of those, they're one of those veteran teams that – just give us a spot, give us a, an invite to the party, and then we'll go around and make friends. Uh, and so that part, but they got to get in. And, you know, you, you talked about Matt Murray. To me, that's the number one key. Um, he has had his up and down. I thought he was unbelievable in Philadelphia the other night. Yeah. And if that's the Matt Murray you're getting, then watch out. I think they can beat almost anyone. But here's what's going to be telling for me. I always, you know, one of my favorite expressions is actions speak louder than words. Jim Rutherford still has his first round pick. <laughs> and so whether or not he keeps that first round pick between now and the 25th is what's going to be telling to me in terms of their thinking both for this year and for the next few years in, in other words if they don't even attempt to get in on the bigger rental market because they feel they've already made enough moves you know they made a big trade with florida got bukesai got mccann if they feel that they need that first round pick because they got to make sure that they have the next generation coming, that, that they need to draft players. I think it admits on some level, Scotty, that they can't be completely all in. Yeah. And so that's so that that would be my telltale is if that first round pick survives past three PM Eastern on the twenty fifth. That's good. And actually, I thought your favorite saying was, where's the wine list? But anyway, that's fair enough. I do know that that's the other one. Uh, all right. We're, we're slowly winding our way here. Um, you know, is there, what's on your mind? What are you waiting to see here? I, I've always, I've, you know, I wait for your uh, rumblings uh, columns to come out. And um, and I love the uh, your uh, discussions about Artemi Panarin and, and what may happen in Columbus. Uh, it, does he become an own rental? And I know you've concocted this uh, um, complex math formula that Yarmo Kekalainen must follow to see whether he keeps him or not. Do the value going out, does it equal what he's bringing in and all that kind of stuff. Is, what do you, is that what you're most focused on? Or is it the Ottawa situation with Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone? Or what's the, what's the thing that 
in the coming days, you're most like, geez, I wonder how this is going to go. Or I have an idea, and I wonder if this is what, will, what it will be. Yeah, it really is Ottawa. And I think the whole hockey world is waiting with, you know, bated breath to see what happens with Ottawa. And, of course, it's tied to Columbus, as I touched on in my piece today. Like, Indeed. It's sort of all tied, not only because the Panarin market value, you know, gets affected to some degree by the fact that Stone and or Duchesne could join him on the market. Those are pretty big names. Uh, if they, you know, and, and let's, let's not kid ourselves. Teams, I think, are already phoning Ottawa. Um, but as we tape this, which is Wednesday afternoon, the Senators have not closed the door still on trying to sign Stone and Duchesne. I just don't know how realistic it is to think it's going to happen. I feel like we've gotten pretty far in this process. But my understanding is that uh, the Senators were reserving one last push on Stone, which I suspect will come before the end of the week. And, uh, and the dialogue continues with Duchesne, Pat Brisson, uh, Tuesday had another conversation with Pierre Dorian. I don't know what came of it. So it's sort of like those things are still happening, but I, I feel now that Pierre Dorian is probably very soon here going to have to start to do the old parallel tracks, right? On the one side, don't close the door and trying to sign these guys, but on the other side, no choice but to start listening to, to trade offers. And th- there's a lot to chew on here. I, I truly, as I reported, I think Columbus uh, has its eyes on Matt Duchesne. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's fascinating stuff when you consider that the Jackets, who are a good team, were in a playoff spot, could add a player of Duchesne's magnitude while at the same time sell Panarin. I mean, it's really unheard of, right? I, I mean, I can't think of a trade deadline where a team is trying to buy and sell to this magnitude. Now, are they going to get Matt Duchesne? Who knows? I mean, there's a lot of competition there. And I'll tell you what could be the downfall of the Blue Jackets in trying to get him, Scotty, is that if... If Ottawa can't sign Duchesne and Stone, surely the Senators will want to explore the idea that if those players are traded, that if they're traded as signed commodities, they they will get way more back in a trade than as rental players. And that's where I think Columbus gets hurt because I'm not, you know, Columbus isn't traditionally a have-to market as far as UFA is looking at them. So if you're Matt Duchesne, there are probably a couple places on your list that are rated above Columbus, I'm sure. Um, which is too bad because every guy that I've known that has played in Columbus, a lot of players love it there. But but that's probably just you know not knowing. So my guess is if Columbus gets in on the Duchesne bidding, their only chance is to get him as a rental and then hope that he likes it after he's there. But, but will they even get the chance to bid if there are other teams willing to sign him now? Is I guess what I'm getting at, Scott. So right. there's so many moving parts to all this. It's a, your your brain almost wants to explode. Well, but and doesn't that also go to the, the the timing of this? Because so much of this is, as you have pointed out, is is interconnected. So and let's say you're Nashville and you're interested in Panarin and or maybe it's or Duchesne. maybe it's Boston yeah or or, or Duchesne. right yeah. it, it, but if one piece can't move until another is uh, the the resolution is clear one way or the other um and and these are complicated deals and especially as you're pointing out right these are players you know Panarin I think everyone expects he said unequivocally that he's going to go to market July 1st so that's different but if you are a team that is looking at well how much do I give up 
uh, and it will be dependent on whether I have Mark Stone under contract or not, or an agreement in, in place when I acquire mm-hmm. Mark Stone that he will stay here at this amount of money and all those kinds of things. You can't do that at two o'clock Eastern on the 25th of February, right? Like it's, there, there needs, you need to have enough, I've used the word runway already, but I'll use it again. You need enough runway to get these kinds of complex deals done. And then if there are dominoes that fall after, it does put some pressure on, I guess, on on Ottawa, particularly because that's maybe the starting point. But there must be a lot of GMs going, "Geez, when is some of this going to start to happen? Because mm-hmm. I'm going to need time to I'm going to need time to a respond to this, and then if I can't make that happen, go to a plan B. Like it, it this doesn't sound like a Monday kind of thing, but who knows, right? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Like if you're Winnipeg, and I think Mark Stone's high on their list. You know, you want to know when you're allowed to make an offer. Are you allowed to negotiate with, you know, all, all these different things? And then if he's not an option, how much time do you have left to... So let's use last year as an example. I mean, I thought the Jets, Kevin Shumleyoff, ran the trade deadline really well. They went after Derek Broussard really hard. And they ended up runner-up to Pittsburgh on him. As you remember, the three-team deal that where Broussard went through Vegas and ended up in Pittsburgh from uh, Ottawa... Uh, but the Jets quickly recovered from that and 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 end up doing Paul Stashney right on deadline day. Although really, I think the deal came together over the weekend and Paul Stashney had to think about it and wave. But my point is, Winnipeg still had time left to recover from not getting Broussard to turn around and get Stashney. Well, these are even bigger names we're talking about now in terms of yeah. Stone and Aaron and Duchesne. I mean, that that's a that's a quite a a class of rentals and attached to a lot of them are all kinds of different scenarios in terms of whether they're pure rentals, which Panarin will be, or guys that perhaps are interested in signing through the trade, which I think Duchesne and Stone might potentially look at. We'll see. Oh man, it's going to be fun. I got to tell you this. I know it's exciting every year, but there is something about this trade deadline period that is, it's amped up, I think. And uh, my guess is you feel the same way. Yeah, it's 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 shaping up to be a little more interesting than it has been the last few years. That's for sure. It's uh, and you know, again, we always I always hate when we're hypocritical because we always downplay looking back the impact of the trade deadline because it's hard for players to adjust, you know, to new teams. And yet, I have to say, when you have a chance to add a guy like Panarin or Stone or Duchesne, my goodness, that that's that, those are pretty awesome players. And, and by the way, Wayne Simmons. I would put in that group too. Who's a pretty unique player with great hands, great goal scorer, leadership, and uh, and as physical as they come. So there's there's some interesting players available. Yeah, good stuff. All right, just before we go and wrap up this edition of uh, Two Man Advantage, the podcast, just wanted to um, send out a, a a word of good wishes and and good thoughts for one of the great guys in the game, and Tom Curvers and. Uh, our colleague Mike Russo at The Athletic wrote uh, a piece this week about the battle ahead of Tom Curvers as, as he deals with cancer. And uh, I know um, Tom's been uh, deluged with well wishes from around the hockey world, which isn't surprising. But I thought the, that you and I would add our voice to that because uh, they don't come any better than Tom Curvers. And um, he's got a battle ahead of him and have no doubt that he will meet it head on. But I wanted to, to throw that out there and say that before we, we close her out today. Yeah, it took me a couple of days to get through uh, Mike Russo's tremendous piece on Tom because, 
uh, every time I started getting through it, I got so choked up that uh, <coughs> couldn't finish it. But uh, yeah, <coughs> we wish Tom the best. I'm with you, my friend. All right, next week let's do it all again. Can't wait. Good work today, Pierre Lebrun. Yes, Hello. and you and you uh, shorten your questions. Just a bit, uh, this week, so good for you. Yeah, I don't want to. You know, I like to mix it up every once in a while, my friends. So, all right, pal, let's do it again next week.